the feast is all. Now brimming wine in lordly cup is seen to shine before each eager guest. And silence fills the crowded hall, as deep as when the herald's call thrills in the loyal breast. Welcome back to the Weird Medieval Guys podcast. I'm Olivia, and this is Aaron, who lives under the floorboards in my house. Just once I'd like you to do a nice one, please. No. <laughs> never. Why? I run this show. I thought it was, was a team effort. Yeah, false. That's how, that's how you, it was sold to me. Is this a coup? This is, yeah, this is a coup d'etat. It's a mid-episode coup. You would have to have power for this to be a coup. The power was an illusion in the first place. I should have never let her see the Barbie movie. <laughs> <laughs> Girl power. All right, then, fearless leader, what are we doing today? Today we are going to war. Rad! So last episode, that was for the girls. This one's for the boys. You're welcome, boys. All the boys out there in Radio Land. (laughs) So today we are talking about sieges and war machines in the Middle Ages. Weird ones, specifically, because that's kind of the point of the show. It's what it says on the tin. Why don't we jump right in? Let's do it. And explore a little bit. What is a war machine? Why would why would someone want one? Right. Okay. Sell me sell me the concept. Say I'm looking to get into sieging. Sell me a sell me a war machine. Okay. So let's say that uh, you really don't like the king of country next door. Let's call him Philip for ease of convenience. Okay. You want to go and you want to go fuck up Philip. Just fuck up his whole family. Kill him. Uh, execute his children. That sort of thing. Wholesome stuff. Normal stuff. Normal stuff in the Middle Ages. Um, you gonna you could march your army into Philip's kingdom. You could just go in there and take him out. Except, oh no, uh, he lives in a massive castle. Oh, Christ. Because the problem is that technologically, castles are really fucking good. They're God. really hard. They're really hard to take down because it's essentially a giant mountain made of rock that they that your enemy is living in. And unfortunately, in the age before gunpowder, there's not many things that are going to take it down. Some of these castle walls are quite high, aren't they? I mean, they can go up to 10 meters, which is, or, you know, even a bit higher, sort of, I think, in some cases, which is, you know, you can try to climb up, I guess, but someone's probably going to get to you first. There's lo- Look, there's lots of stuff you can try. You can undermine a castle, so you literally dig under the walls and then set explosives or literally try and come out. Under, like underneath the castle walls, um, you can you can use you can try and climb it, but realistically, it's not going to go very well. And especially if it's a if it's a castle by the sea or a, oh or a fortress city, it's 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 a it's a big mess. Because of that, castles are horrifically overpowered, and they can keep a very very uh, otherwise vulnerable force uh, incredibly well protected for a really long time. So one of the reasons why. I'm sorry, we're going to do it again. Constantinople. (laughs) Four for four, baby. Yeah, that's right. The reason why uh, Constantinople manages to stay sort of relevant and the Byzantine Empire manages to survive within Constantinople when the entire sort of hinterland of the empire has collapsed by the 15th century is because Constantinople is surrounded by these monstrously thick walls. The uh, Theodosian walls, as they were called, which were so impregnable that even though the city had been completely diminished, like it had gone from a city of a million to like a city of a couple thousand people, most of whom used this formerly urban space as farmland. <laughs> um, that's how that's how depleted it was. They were still repelling enemies until uh, 1453 because they were just so easy. It was so ridiculously easy to defend. Yeah, I mean, isn't Constantinople one of the most heavily besieged cities in history, or at least of the Middle Ages? It's also one of the cities with sort of the most um, success in repelling sieges. Beat back 23 armies. Woohoo! I know. It's, it's, a, it's one of the greatest to ever do it. You have to, you have to respect. And that's why I will probably reference this city <laughs> in every single episode of this show, by hook or by crook. And, to make matters worse, not only are, are your enemies sitting behind a giant-ass uh, wall, but they're also um, throwing stuff at you. They're shooting at you, they are throwing boiling oil at your soldiers. Oh, yeah. It's a mess, right? So you're, 
So you're standing inside outside of the castle. Your enemy has retreated inside this, like I said, giant mountain, essentially. Yep. <laughs> full of boiling oil and arrows. And importantly, they also often would have sort of supplies and provisions, right? And you might not yeah. know how long they had supplies and provisions mm-hmm. for. So in theory, you know, they could be holed up in there for months or yes. even years. And I think there are examples of sieges lasting months or even oh, several years. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the classic move was, as soon as you know the enemy's advancing, you harvest all the crops in the immediate sort of vicinity, burn everything you can't carry so that there's nothing to feed the enemy army, and then essentially you just, you just sit back and uh, enjoy your corn while <laughs> yep. while the enemy starves so it's a, it's it's it ends up being a waiting game and this the uh advantage is pretty heavily on the side of the defenders mm-hmm. unless you can come up with some kind of wonderful uh ingenious way of breaking down those walls of getting around them of getting over them um then the odds even out a bit And I think it's important to mention that a really big aspect of the siege is the psychological aspect, Mm. because practically speaking, the attackers are not necessarily sort of advantaged. But you can imagine that even if you have the safety and security of being behind walls, then seeing your city surrounded by an army, no one can come in or out. They're constantly there. You have to live with this presence that's quite sort of psychologically diminishing. Oh yeah, and, and you probably know how long you can last. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because you'll have you'll have inventoried your stores. Because let's be honest, there's not much else to do. Yep. <laughs> um, you'll know it. You'll know almost down to the day when you'll have to start eating bark. Yeah. So um, you're kind of on a timer. Anything that can push the scales, either sort of practically or psychologically, um, in the direction of the attackers, can be quite sort of decisive, can't mm-hmm. it? Absolutely. And so, because of that technological challenge, the uh, medieval people got very good at coming up with uh, horrible new ways to throw rocks at each other, (laughs) (laughs) essentially. Obviously, has existed for a long time mm-hmm. prior to the medieval period. Yeah. So obviously, the ancient, the classical world um, had sieges and siege engines, which we'll get a bit more into what siege engines are. Mm-hmm. But there was definitely an advancement, technologically speaking, um, in terms of how these engines are being built and the scale and the ideas that people are coming up with. We see a pretty big advancement of that in the Middle Ages. Don't oh we? yeah. If you wanted to draw an unbelievably oversimplified sort of timeline. Um, I would say that you, at, the, at the start of the Middle Ages, basically, you start out with stuff that's inherited directly from uh, the classical period. So, a catapult, as it were. Pretty simple. A, a, a good old simple uh, winched catapult. Um, you know, you use the tension in a rope, wind it back, throw a rock, right? And that's okay. That's so-so. Um, but it's not getting... It's, it's, it, it could be better, right? Yeah. Then... Uh, in the sort of high Middle Ages, you get the in- the innovation of the trebuchet. Yeah, so you have a big counterweight hanging on one side. You kind of um, wind this thing up so the weight is lifted off the ground, and then you cut the rope that's holding it, um, and you're able to throw an even bigger rock with even greater force. Yes, much, 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 much faster. And by the way, I should note, um, these things could be absolutely monstrous Huge. in size. My favorite one... Uh, I, and I love it because it has just the most amazing name, um, was Warwolf. God, that puts the fear right into you. Well, it does, it? doesn't it? Okay, so let me tell you the story of Warwolf real quick. So, it's, uh, you remember Braveheart? We talked about Braveheart. We love Braveheart. We love Braveheart. Pro Braveheart. So this is after Braveheart, right? William Wallace's army is has been defeated by the English forces, and the, the English king and his armies are basically mopping up the last isolated bits of Scottish resistance. One of those... Uh, points of resistance is Stirling Castle, a phenomenally important city uh, strategically because it is the it is the sort of gateway between the Highland region of Scotland in the northwest and the Lowland region in the south, and so it's vitally important that whoever takes Stirling Castle kind of has, controls the passage 
uh, between, um, between those two regions. And Stirling Castle is one of the last holdouts of Scottish resistance, and they're in there, as we've talked about, for quite a long time. So Edward employs uh, this guy, and we don't know very much about him except that he has a French name, but it's medieval England, that could mean anything, um, to build him the biggest trebuchet anyone's ever built. Hell yeah. This thing is, at a conservative estimate, right? This is the, 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 the lowest estimates of height that we hear are it's as tall as the Statue of Liberty. Jesus. And it is assembled in front of Stirling Castle. Well, you're not going to move it, are you? Well, no, but like, hear me out, right? Hear me out, okay? <laughs> what that does is they start building this thing, this absolute, like, wicker man ass. <laughs> this wicker man ass, like, tower of wood. And when it's like halfway done, the defenders send out a letter saying, "Oh yeah, we're sorry, we're we're uh, surrendering." Well, yeah, because it's the it's the site. I mean, in the in the Wicker Man, you have this scene. I don't know if you've seen this movie, but I have not. You had better. You have this scene where they're dragging him in front of the Wicker Man, and you just hear him say, "Oh God, oh Jesus, oh Jesus Christ," <laughs> and that's probably what they were thinking. And it's uh, just this Castle. moment of of pure horror, and I think you can imagine when looking at a trebuchet that's yeah. the size of the Statue of Liberty. Yes. Feeling very similarly. Oh, yeah. And so so the, the, the Scottish defenders, they sort of surrender conditionally, and uh, the English commanders basically go, no, you fucking don't. <laughs> don't accept surrender <laughs> and fire it at them. And, yeah, it, it just caves in. Unbelievable. A, a wall immediately. And he's like, okay, now I've made my point. <laughs> You want, you now you surrender. If you're going to the trouble of building the 300-foot-tall trebuchet, you want to use it, don't you? Oh, yeah. Now, you spend all this money. You want to you wanna play with your new toy. and But I think, I think that, makes, that story makes a great example of the, the psychological value yeah. of, of, of war machines. But, of course, that's not the final evolution, because the next thing that they come up with, the next sort of wheeze for throwing giant, giant uh, bits of metal and rock at people is cannons. Yes. Because by the by the 14th century. Yes. Um gunpowder is pretty prevalent in Europe at this point. It's come over from China. Um and people are already thinking of all the cool stuff they can do with it. We'll get into that later. <laughs> <laughs> um and one of the first things they figure out is, "Oh, we can use this to fire a big ball of lead at a wall much faster than a um much faster than a than a, than a trebuchet or a catapult, because powered by the combustion yep. of the gunpowder, and so they immediately start building these increasingly elaborate and enormous, um, monstrous cannons. And these things are phenomenally dangerous to start with. They are fucking always exploding. Yeah, like you, there. It's one of the worst jobs you can have on a medieval <laughs> battlefield. <laughs> In my opinion, is cannon guy. Yeah. <laughs> artilleryman. Even though you're at the back, because, like, this thing is probably going to, like, horribly burn you at least. Like, scar you for life. But nevertheless, the cannon does sort of spell the end of siege warfare in a way. Because if you imagine siege warfare as sort of a game of rock, paper, scissors, mm -hmm. and all of a sudden you bring a gun, <laughs> that's going to beat all of them. <laughs> 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 oh, it's so true. And the moment that I like to use as a like as an example of this is that's right, it's, we're doing Constantinople again. It was, this was a setup and payoff all along. <laughs> um the year is 1453. The new Ottoman sultan, uh, Mehmet II, has who by the way is a teenager at this stage. Everybody forgets that. Um is getting ready to uh, launch an assault on uh, Constantinople. Now, lots of people can't think he, don't think he can do it because Constantinople has, as we've said, is like the most siege-proof city in the world, and even, even though the Byzantine Empire has shriveled up to basically nothing outside of Constantinople. And, uh, and also, this guy is a basically unproven teenager. <laughs> and so he's, he's sort of casting around for... Um, 
for guys who can help him pull off the heist of the century, essentially. Um, he's getting a team together. He's looking for his Robert Oppenheimer to make another topical reference, essentially. Meanwhile, uh, over in Constantinople, um, a an engineer of ambiguous sort of Transylvanian extraction. <laughs> People say Hungarian, but they also say Dacian, which kind of means Romanian. It's complicated. Um... Uh, this 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 strange Transylvanian man shows up uh, at the at Constantinople at, at at the door of the emperor and says, "I can build you a, ca- a a cannon so mighty it would shake the walls of Babylon." Oh my! I know. Every this is the great thing, by the way, about Ottoman history is that everybody is like the most cool and dramatic person ever. Every quote is like, "I will kill God himself." Who was the pirate guy you mentioned? Oh God. Okay, we're going way. This the great siege of Malta. One of the one of the, another one of the all time great sieges. Uh, the the sort of overseeing uh, commander of the Turkish forces is a guy by the name of Dragut. The drawn sword of Islam, the pirate king of the Barbary coast. Dude's rock. Yes! Oh, he's so cool. Everybody's so cool. Anyway, this Transylvanian guy named Orban shows up in Constantinople. He pitches his cannon uh, to the to the emperor, and the emperor says, he looks around and he goes, Man, I cannot afford your salary, and also, even if I could afford your salary, what would I build it with? Orban goes, eh, your loss. He immediately goes to the Ottoman capital and, <laughs> and gives and gives Mehmet the exact same pitch. And Mehmet, who, by the way, is a huge nerd, like loves um, loves like engineering and, and, and siege warfare and history and all that kind of stuff. And he's like, the biggest cannon anybody's ever seen. Oh my god. Um Yes, please. So he wow. he pays Orban's salary. So they start building it outside of the uh, outside of the Ottoman capital of Adrianople, and uh, they then have to transport it, obviously, to to Constantinople. And this takes forty wagons, sixty oxen, and two hundred guys just to walk beh- beside the beside the wagons to make sure that things don't like fall off and explode and Christ. like kill people. This thing, if you look at like drawings of it it looks like one of the worms from dune <laughs> this thing is monstrous shell anyway they, they bring it and they assemble it outside of constantinople and it immediately becomes like the iconic weapon of that um of that uh of that siege orban names it basilica which is another just phenomenal name amazing just just wonderful stuff it's such a behemoth that you can only fire it seven times a day. That's amazing. And it absolutely just wrecks these walls that I was taught that I was that I've been bigging up for like ten minutes now. Like just blows through them. And historians generally agree that it was key in sort of bringing about the, the fall of Constantinople. Now the sort of the, the sort of Frankenstein's monster twist at the end <laughs> of the story is that Orban never gets to see his uh, see his triumph. Uh, because uh, he dies during the siege, probably because one of his cannons blew up. Oops. Sorry. <laughs> hey, at least he died doing what he loved, exploding. So cannons in their own way, by being so unbelievably overpowered, basically change the strategic calculus of sieges. You now can't hold out for nearly as long. Walls don't work the same way. You know, even though there are sieges... There's less of an emphasis on these kind of complex, wacky siege machines, and it becomes more about purely numbers of men and resources and amount of firepower. Yeah. It just becomes about having more guns and bigger guns. Whereas, as we'll get into, mm-hmm. during kind of the high point of siege machines and siege engines, we have all sorts of crazy inventions. You had to get creative. Theoretical being thrown about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had you had to you had to sort of. You had to think outside of the box a little bit. Then I will pay my so talking about Orban and his sort of slightly ironic, uh, tragic fate uh, brings us to a very important question that we, we, we need to ask this episode, which is, who's making all this stuff? Who is uh, designing these... Uh, monstrous machines 
uh, and coming up with cool new ways to murder people. Because in many ways, the guys behind these stories and these machines are almost as interesting as the machines themselves. Because even They're weird th- medieval guys. They are. Oh my god. Because even though you could be appointed as, for instance, a court weapons master or something as a, a permanent role, as it were, a lot of these guys are just dudes who come from backgrounds that are not necessarily strictly directly related to things like engineering in no small part because in the Middle Ages there wasn't necessarily the same sort of separation of fields that we think of today. There wasn't, you know, STEM and the arts. <laughs> and, you know, if you if you think of, people think of, you know, Leonardo da Vinci as kind of the classic Renaissance man in that he... The polymath. Yeah, in that he could do everything, you mm-hmm. know, or, or many different things, and he saw them as all related. But this was how most or how a lot of people thought about different fields, and people were very interdisciplinary. So one guy, um, Conrad Kaiser, who wrote a very influential siege and warfare book um, called Bellafortis. Strong in war. Strong in war. He was a physician, as best we know. Um, we think. He yeah. was also briefly a crusader, yeah. which, didn't, which didn't end well for him. He was a very bad crusader. So, <laughs> he so lost he, immediately. <laughs> and we know that while he was in exile, that was when he started writing his famous warfare book, which is... I think it goes to show you there's a, a very long-standing tradition of, like, good prison literature. I mean, mm-hmm. if you look all the way back in the Middle Ages, we get, like, Dante. Um, I think or, or I think Ovid as well wrote things mm-hmm. in exile, like Oscar Wilde, Dostoevsky. You know, it, it seems like sort of fertile land for, uh, you know, great thinkers, sort of prison slash exile. Um, yeah, and I think that, like, that uh, you're absolutely right to mention the, the sort of the lack of sort of well-defined fields of, of study. Because you gotta remember, like, at this stage, even at the very tail end of the, of the Middle Ages, universities are still kind of developing as a concept, and a lot of sort of key knowledge production and reproduction is kind of handled via the church. And the church's assumptions about what fields and concepts are related are, uh, are hugely influential. So our categories of, like, an engineer like you say, we can't really apply them uh, to the to, to the Middle Ages uh, in any sort of meaningful way. Yeah, especially because a l- oftentimes the point of these books was to not just invent new information, but also to sort of compile and perfect existing information. So you have Conrad Kaiser, and he's writing about different war machines like trebuchets and catapults and, you know, ballistae like giant crossbows and things like that. But he also has bits that are like, you're going to need a knife and a ladder. And then he's also got And bits. a scuba suit. <laughs> yeah, oh, he's got scuba suits in there. He's got stuff about how to feed your soldiers. He has a recipe for a giant egg, yes. which I love. The recipe basically goes, take 60 eggs, <laughs> separate the whites from the yolks, mix all the whites together, mix the yolks together, pour the whites into a pan, cook it, and then pour the yolks into the center to create a giant egg. And he ends it by saying, and thus you can feed many soldiers with one egg. (laughs) (laughs) Which is amazing. There's a a chastity, but the first known drawing of a chastity belt. Wait, that's the first one. Is in Conrad Kaiser's Bellafortis. It's it's important to note that Conrad Kaiser is really writing at the sort of tail end of the Middle Ages. This is like the very start of the 15th century when when Bellafortis is sort of is is finished, and we have this the, the so the image of medieval women having to wear chastity belts and all that crap. Again, like that doesn't that doesn't map on at all to what we sort of know. This is this is stuff that's showing up at the very tail end anyway. Yeah, of the period because we know from a lot of these books. That even though we have like representations of things in these books, it doesn't also necessarily mean that these concepts were being implemented and used in real life. And oh, I think really? It's often, I think, a misconception because you see articles on the internet. This drives me nuts. You see articles on the internet that take these images entirely out of context mm-hmm. and say, oh, this was how warfare was conducted in the Middle Ages. So, for instance, there's one um, guy who wrote a sort of fencing and fighting manual, and in this manual he lays out instructions for how 
a duel between a man and a woman can be conducted. And he basically says this. He says, dig a hole to waist height. And the man has to stand in the hole. And he gets a club. And the woman... And he can't leave the hole. And the woman gets, like, a bag with a rock in it. And she can run around and chase and sort of run around (laughs) the hole and attack from any angle. And she has full mobility. He has to stay inside the hole. And... The guy who wrote this book says, and that's how a man and a woman should engage in a duel. And Hashtag I've seen, feminism. <laughs> and I've seen people take this and put this on the internet and say, this is how men and women dueled each other in the Middle Ages. No, we have absolutely no proof that this was ever implemented. Yeah. And there are loads of other wacky ideas like this. You know, just because one guy wrote this down and said, oh, you could do this this way, it doesn't mean it was actually carried out. And that, I think, brings us on to a really important thing about these quote-unquote military manuals. Uh, which really also, again, like, as a genre, I think it's important to say that these don't really show up until the, the sort of late Middle Ages. And before the sort of 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, we really know fuck all <laughs> about the the people who are making these war machines. And it's only when this genre really gets popularized at the at, in the late medieval, early Renaissance period that we can start drawing inferences about sort of what how, how how these people did their jobs essentially and and what they were thinking about and writing about but in any case um the important thing about these these manuals is that they're like you say they're speculative these are a collection of ideas essentially like these guys are spitballing they're not reproducing things that they've uh seen they, they that they've made themselves or seen used necessarily they might be drawing on classical texts Mm -hmm. uh, which is something that we're definitely going to talk about in a minute Um, but they are for the most part just being like oh you could do it like that and the reason they're doing that is because these manuals in many cases especially when it comes to like siege engines and war machines are not manuals they are essentially Argos catalogs (laughs) (laughs) they are to be circulated with kings and princes and to say hey, uh, Conrad Kaiser or uh, Giovanni di Fontana can make you all kinds of cool stuff. Here's a selection of stuff, the kinds of things you might be able to order off the menu. Uh, maybe you should hire them. And because, because like you say, they are um, often itinerant sort of polymaths who are seeking a patron to pay their stipend for a little bit. Who among us? Homest Among Us isn't that. They're just hustling. Yeah, and oftentimes they're sort of trying to adapt or, like, show off new technology. So, for instance, when gunpowder and explosives are introduced to Europe, we get one of, I think, the most amazing and iconic sort of fantasy images in one of these books, which is the exploding cat. (laughs) Which is a guy who says, okay, here's what you need to do to win a siege. You want to take a bag of gunpowder and tie it to a cat. Yes. And then you want to set it on fire and just send the cat off into the enemy's city. And he says, oh, you can also do this with a pigeon. (laughs) And he says, make sure the cat or the pigeon actually goes towards the city. Very important. If they don't, you'll be in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Now you have two problems. (laughs) And again, no evidence that this ever actually took place, but you can imagine sort of... I mean, I was going to say, you can imagine seeing this as a, you know, a king or as a military commander and sort of being quite intrigued or impressed. Although maybe that's sort of, you know, maybe maybe they weren't actually sort of, you know, rubes to that extent. Um, But it was it was often speculative, I think, is the bottom line here. Yeah, it was like, this is the kind of thing you could get, potentially. So we've been talking in in mostly general terms up to this point about uh, military manuals, who would make them, what's in them, why you should take them with a with a grain of salt, and and why you would and why people were making them to start with. Um, but let's zero in, I think, on one of the most uh, iconic ones of all time, which is uh, we've already mentioned it, the Bella Fortis by Conrad Kaiser, and this thing is just a cornucopia of. Um, of weird shit. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you scroll through and, like, a lot of it is not instantly recognizable. Like, a lot of it just kind of looks like Silent Hill sort of <laughs> type. Like, 
just spikes. I mean, there's like 12 different kinds of ladders that all have different <laughs> configurations of spikes on the ends. There's like six or 10 sort of different types of like wagons that have spikes and like wheels made so out of So he loves saw wagons. Blades. Yeah. yeah. He's, he, he's obsessed with this idea of like, oh yeah, you just like put a bunch of spikes on a wagon and then just push it yeah. at the enemy and they'll just get threshed essentially <laughs> the principle seems pretty sound in all fairness yeah it is it is all it's it looks like saw traps yeah he's got like giant pincers that you can use to grab people off of enemy ramparts and just rip them down things like that were actually used yes, to be fair yeah some of these were used the idea of like hooking a guy and just picking him up and yeah <laughs> fucking him off i mean he has a lot of like just kind of weapons that are like a knife with a whip attached, or like what you if know, a, a what if a mace was also a sword? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, it's like it's it's as I feel like I say in every one of these episodes. It's it's all kind of psychedelically weird. Yes, uh, just a cornucopia of death. Yeah, and he is also famous for these like diving machines that don't really. They just kind of look like big membranes. They look like just sort of bladders yeah. that you kind of strap to yourself and you're like, oh, if you use this, you'll be able to breathe. And I'm like, huh? Really? How? Yeah. Really? I'm not sure. I mean, it's not entirely unconvincing, but yeah, he, he's... And a lot of this stuff, by the way, he's like, oh yeah, this is... Alexander the Great used this. And I'm like, but did he though? <laughs> but that's a, that's, that's a classic like medieval... Um, sort of literary trope of being like, oh yeah, this is an, uh, a forgotten uh, weapon or technique or knowledge uh, fr from the classical period. They loved to say that. And there was, I think, also an element in the Middle Ages of making things arbitrarily complex. Oh yeah. So that you could prove that you knew sort of everything about them. So the classic example is hunting, mm -hmm. in that hunting kind of had, you know, different tactics and different, you know, types of strategies, different types of dogs that you would breed and different sort of configurations of hunting parties and different words for every different not only type of animal but type of animal droppings and animal tracks and animal stages of animals lives and types of animal meat i mean this is why like in english we say beef and pork instead of you know cow and chicken meat is because they were sort of bent on creating you know arbitrary terms and scenarios whereby things were so complex and like obscure beyond the point of practicality so you could say oh i know all about this and therefore sort of prove your own knowledge which comes through really clearly in bellafortis actually because one of the things that's that's interesting and and, and people pick up on this a lot um is that he kind of obfuscates how all this is supposed to work yeah i mean some of the more simple ones are like oh this is just a giant fork like three guys will pick up the end of it and just run it the enemy like that is pretty self-explanatory but some of the more sort of complex machines and you see this by the way this whole genre of sort of military manuals they'll present this like incredibly ingenious looking like rope pulley system yeah. that like raises a ladder that has like a sword attached to it or whatever and there's no indication of how it's supposed to work yeah like it's there's a deliberate obfuscation of what the sort of what the mechanics are and part of that is the reason is you know because um a lot of this isn't real, but you see that with the illustrations of things that we do know were used, like for example oh, yeah. trebuchets and stuff like that. There's not there. That's why I, I like I sort of say that they're not really manuals, because you're not supposed to be able to look at it and go, oh, I can do this now. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I said think... Argos catalogs. <laughs> Google Argos catalog. I've just realized all of a sudden that we have a very international listener base who don't know what Argos is. Yeah, for American listeners, uh, Walmart catalogs. For everyone else in the world, it's like Amazon.com. Kinda, yeah. Like an evil Amazon. Evil, well... So Amazon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's Bellafortis. But I, th I don't think we can really understand what Bellafortis is about, really, without talking about the guy. Conrad, Conrad Kaiser. Kaiser. The fucking absolute lad. I think it, he, he shows up in, in... I can't remember the name of it, but there's a, there's a video game that he turns up in. Oh, yeah. Played by Brian Blessed, which I think is inspired. So let's talk about this guy's life. We've kind of intimated a little bit about it, 
but unfortunately we don't really know for sure. We think from the context of his writing that he's a physician by trade. He's possibly German or possibly from the Czech Republic, although, of course, these countries aren't really countries that exist. He's from Bohemia. Yeah. What we do know pretty much for certain is that uh, Konrad Kaiser was uh, present at the Battle of Nicopolis, which is one of the greatest military bungles in European history. It was meant to start an Allied crusade to essentially kick uh, the kick the the Ottomans out of the Balkans, and it was such a complete disaster that uh, the crusade literally never even got started, <laughs> essentially. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and and Kaiser was there, and he blamed it squarely on uh, the commander of the uh, crusade, Crusader army, uh, King Sigismund of Hungary. Anyway, so so years pass, and uh, at the start of the um, at the start of the fifteenth uh, century, Kaiser is working in the court of uh, King Wenceslas of Bohemia. Yes, the guy from the song, uh, who's also the Holy Roman Emperor at that point. Now, Wenceslas gets deposed by the very same Sigismund. Yeah, that's right. He's being haunted by this. Guy. Oh God! And um, and Kaiser gets depo- gets uh, exiled from Prague. And he sort of go and he goes into exile, and um, and he's bitter, and he is miserable, he's furious. He has been, he feels like he has been wronged his entire life by this failing, this <laughs> this malignant failure of a king. <laughs> and so it, he sort of he sits down at his writing desk, and he pours everything he's got into um, into writing Bellafortis. And he does. He dedicates it to the new Holy Roman Emperor, who is a weak king who was sort of imposed by uh, by Sigismund and the um, and some of the other sort of prelates. And he says in his dedication, um, and there's I couldn't find a good English translation, so I'm gonna have to paraphrase, if if I may. Listen, I'm dying. Actually, no. First of all, here's my CV. Here's everyone I've ever worked for. Anyway, I'm dying. Uh, oh, also, here's a funeral ode that you should do for me when I'm dead. Also, oh, also, here's a list of all the people who will be sad when I die, including, if I may, rich people, the nobility, poor people, four-legged animals, three-legged animals, what? birds, and worms. That's just about everyone. I mean, pretty much everybody around yourself. here. I guess, like, I'm a worm. <laughs> I'm a poor person. <laughs> What's I, what's a three-legged animal, by the way? That's been haunting me. I have no idea. If anyone knows what the implication there is, please... Anyway, Sigismund is a treasonous bitch, and uh, here's everything I know about warfare. It would be a real shame if you were to use these this knowledge to bring him down. Wink. Anyway, I'm gonna go die now. Iconic. What a king. What One of the great haters of the Middle Ages. And I think there's something sort of familiar and something a bit relatable in just being, like, bitterly obsessed with with spiting one guy, even though he probably doesn't think about you that much. Oh, yeah. No, it's a classic example of, I feel bad for you. I don't even think about you at all. Yeah. <laughs> like the madman meme. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so... so so he, he, he dedicates it to the Holy Roman Emperor, and it's, it's very clearly meant to be a, a menu that, that a king can order off of, which is why I do kind of doubt in my heart of hearts that he actually thought he was dying. Yeah. Because otherwise, why would you not kind of explain how it would all work? Yeah. Why would you, do, why would you go to the, the, um, the trouble of writing all, down all your sort of increasingly impractical ideas? If there was no kind of chance of them being there was being implemented, and you weren't making the effort to try and explain how it would work, yeah, I get the sense that the whole "I'm dying" thing was like a quick order now, limited <laughs> time only. Call now. <laughs> <laughs> Had to put Butterfield in there. Had to put Butterfield. <laughs> He's Butterfield. He's Fla- flaming cat. <laughs> Man grabber. <laughs> Spike ladder. Lord Mayor's croupier. <laughs> Australian. <laughs> <sighs> so, 
like, for example, like one of the iconic images of that book is like a drawing of Alexander the Great holding a magical rocket. Now, what is the Holy Roman Emperor meant to do with that information? That's I, was that an actual question? Because I've got no idea. It was both the rhetorical question, but also an actual question, and I'm 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 relieved that you came to the same conclusion as me. Now, of course, um, Conrad Kaiser isn't the only uh, weird guy uh, hanging around in this period. He's not the only weird medieval guy. You may be no. surprised to hear. Kel surprise. Um, no, there are there are other guys uh, hanging around writing other similar manuscripts. Uh, another one of my personal favorites is a guy named Giovanni Fontana. God, this guy has actually he might be weirder than Conrad Kaiser. He has a wonderful face. How would you describe his face? In the one illustration that we have of him, I would say not mad, but disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's a, he's a, he's a pouty sour man. Yeah, definitely. So so Giovanni Fontana, uh, he is a, and I'm going to put huge quotation marks around this for reasons we've already discussed. Engineer working for uh, the Venetian Republic, one of the weirdest countries in all of um, in all of medieval Europe. A sort of maritime empire slash trade monopoly. Yeah, a kind of a just a independent city-state. It's five corporations in a trench coat, essentially. Um, it's a country that is, it's basically just like the city of Venice, and then a sort of smattering of islands and, and, and colonies across the Mediterranean. And they have sort of like some of the most insane, like obscure leadership structures, oh like governmental... God structures in all of the middle ages they have something deranged like 10 rounds of voting for yeah. elections for yeah. their for the for the elected doge who is then a lifetime appointment it's a very strange country uh, we've talked in the past about how like medieval states are not like countries in the sense that we would understand it the vent like the Ven the venetian republic is the least country-like of all of them by quite a long way don't they have a ceremony they do annually at this point where the leader gets married to the sea. Yes, they marries the sea. They throw a wedding ring into the sea. The sea is very important to them. It's their... Um, it's wall-to-wall -wall sea. It's all sea all the way. Yeah. Because obviously, I mean, they live in a lagoon. Um, and they, they and, and they have a, they have a vice-like grip on uh, sea-based trade in the Mediterranean uh, in this period. But there are not many Venetians. And this is a problem that the, that the Venetian Republic is grappling with at sort of the late medieval period, is they want, to, they want to get on terra firma, as they call it, essentially. They want more territory um, that they control themselves because they are, right now, when they are sort of fighting their battles, they have to rely on mercenaries who yeah. are unreliable, violent, and just sort of, if you're a sort of genteel Italian businessman, uh, having a pack of, like, rapacious German mercenaries fight a bunch of sort of noble knights. It's not a great look. It's not the best thing. It's not the great, it's not the best look. So they want, they want terra farmer. They want to be able to expand their empire into sort of mainland Europe. And so they hire people like Giovanni Fontana to sort of start winning battles for them. And Giovanni Fontana, like, uh, like a lot of the guys that we've talked about in this episode, he puts together his own Argos catalog of stuff he can do called Bellicorum Instrumentorum Liber, which is, to be fair, not the name that he gave her. That's a name that was given later. And this thing is, like, it's wall-to-wall -wall wacky inventions that I would say it's it's rooted almost less in practicality and reality than Conrad Kaiser's work, the Bella Fortis. So we have... This guy is a full-on mad scientist. Yes, yeah, so we have, first of all, I don't know looking through this like what most of these things are and that's deliberate because this thing is very important to note written in code yeah oh yeah a lot of them look kind of bdsm-y <laughs> i would say um and we've got like code ciphers as well we have like ro devil robot sort of automaton things we have like magic rockets and magic lanterns it's yeah, the whole thing is very, very obscure, I would say. Yeah, and you have like thing you have like 
rapid-fire rocket machines that I think, in, in your words, before we started recording, looks like a 12-year-old druid. Yeah, they're not sort of, I would say, anatomically. The, the, the perspective, the anatomy, you know, it could, uh... It's all... a bit of development. Yeah, it's all, like we said, it's not meant to be a manual in the way that we serve, we, 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 we imagine it. But it's, it's not sieging for dummies. No, 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 no. It's like it's it's like an art portfolio, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> and that's very deliberate. I you know, as as we've said, it's sort of like a magician doesn't explain his sort of tricks, you know. Yeah, if he explained everything, you wouldn't you wouldn't hire him. And I say magician very deliberately, because that is exactly what uh Giovanni Fontana thought he was. That's right. Wizards are real. And they're building your trebuchet. Magic. Roll and great spirit looks down on us and us. Beckon us onward to victory. So, yeah, so a lot of these sort of so-called engineers are also very strong believers in magic as in fact many people in the middle ages were i think often contrary to what we think of as being the medieval mindset towards magic yeah giovanni di fontana literally called himself a magus which is just so rad <laughs> <laughs> there is absolutely a fantastical element to medieval life that is I think has been kind of erased in the way that we think about it now. Because the what's the the stereotypical image of the Middle Ages, you know, thanks to you die in Python. A, you die in a field and you go to church. Yeah, and and, and you it. burn witches. Yes. Oh God. Yeah, burning witches, which I mean did happen, but the whole witch burning craze, you kind of have to. That's 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 a um, really a. 17th 18th century thing oh yeah that's a much later innovation actually in the middle ages people fucking loved doing magic and people didn't think of magic as sort of being a separate and distinct thing you know from like the christian world and from the no. godly worlds monks were doing magic and a, and a lot of in a lot of cases that sprung from the fact that a lot of ideas about magic and what sort of poultices and spells worked were sort of passed down, sometimes a bit in a sort of Chinese whispers kind of way, but were passed down from the classical world. So you have like monks who are saying like, "Oh yeah, you got to get like a mandrake root, and oh, that yeah. that that that's that has curative properties." But you know the uh, but and they wouldn't necessarily consider that to be like witchcraft. And there was there were there were prohibitions on magic, but only like the bad kind. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So it was like, don't cavort with demons, essentially. <laughs> Um, Wait, astrology, for instance, goes all the way back. I mean, obviously, you know, to earlier than the Middle Ages, but medieval people were huge on astrology, and it was thought that all sorts of things, you know, whether it was favorable to launch, an, uh, you know, an invasion or to open a new, new business endeavor or pursue a lover, it was thought that astrology could tell you a lot about whether or not it was a good idea to do these things and when it was a good idea to do these things. That's right. So the next time a uh, bisexual woman messages you to ask you what time you were born, just know that you are participating in a time-honored tradition of, of that once upon a time was a noble and respected science. Absolutely. 500 years ago, your ancestors were sending each other notes, you know, saying, <laughs> what time were you born at? I've drawn up the old birth chart. And you, you would go and ask your mother, and she would go, don't talk to her. <laughs> she would say, clocks haven't been invented yet. I have no idea. I literally passed out like five times. <laughs> there was no anesthetic. Uh, I have no idea. That entire first year is a blur. Um... <laughs> And by the way, I should say, one of the people who was big on astrology, our old friend, Conrad Kaiser, one of the first sort of sections of Bellafortis is all about, like, planets and how you can sort of protect yourself from, from Saturn. <laughs> and so, like, everybody's in on this. You know, from peasants who are doing, like, basically hedge magic where they would, like... You know, the, the, the oldest, most wizened woman in your village would teach you how to yeah. make a 
make a, a poultice to, to cure gangrene or whatever uh, that didn't work. And um, But it, it was also popular in the courts of European monarchs. Having a court astrologer was, or astrologist was a huge thing. I've heard a really interesting point made actually about that, which is that the, the conditions of court politics where there is the king and he's surrounded by all these sort of people whose power is sort of contextual and not well-defined and structured and based on sort of interpersonal relationships and informal, so basically like succession, um, that that is actually a great, those are great conditions for magic to sort of spread as an idea because all of a sudden you're like, I gotta get a, I gotta make a love potion to seduce this hot babe yep. <laughs> to consolidate my power <laughs> or I can sleep with this guy's wife or yeah. whatever. Like that's, that, that is the ideal Petri dish for people to be kind of obsessed with this stuff. And so it kind of is unsurprising that people like Fontana and, uh, Kaiser who are these sort of slightly mystical weirdos yeah. would get this would would have this kind of favor in in that kind of environment and when we say magic i think it's it's really interesting to 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 note that um by the time people like kaiser and fontana are writing the idea of what magic is is kind of already changing so we've talked about like um like spells and poultices and 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 all that sort of stuff that we that we now sort of recognize as magic or witchcraft or whatever you want to call it. But in uh, Fontana and Kaiser's day, there was a new definition of magic that was starting to emerge. And that was this idea of artificial magic, which is just a wonderful phrase, by the way, isn't it? It's kind of like retro-futuristic or something in a way. There was this, there was this second art where you could sort of do mystical, like miraculous things through mechanical processes or through like chemistry or whatever so the natural magic as we already mentioned before has a lot to do with forces of nature astrology um, like herbalism parts of the human body um, and that sort of falls into what we might think of in the traditional sense as folk magic or witchcraft mm -hmm. but then there's the second type as well there's the artificial magic yeah what I think is so interesting about about this, and what and, and this is one of the reasons, by the way, that I, I sort of take issue a lot of the time with drawing too fine a line between like medieval, the medieval world and, and the sort of Renaissance world where supposedly everybody's sort of enlightened, etc., is that people in the Middle Ages, whether they're, whether they're using it for war or not, are already doing physics and doing chemistry. Something like a, 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 a trebuchet the size of the Statue of Liberty is actually an incredibly complicated mechanical device oh, yeah. that requires a very precise understanding of physical laws. Something like, for example, one of my, we haven't even had a chance to talk about it, one of my favorite actual real weapons in the Middle Ages, Greek fire, which was this horrific sort of napalm-like substance that you could spray out of like pressurized hoses and just Black, like, it's a, a flamethrower, essentially. There's, there's illustrations of it um, in um, like Byzantine manuscripts where it looks quite twee. And then you sort of think about what actually that involves. Just sort of twee napalm. Yeah, yeah, just sort of firebombing my enemies with twee napalm. No, genuinely, like there's, there, there's one illustration of like a, a ship firing it at another ship. And I'm like, that boat's made of wood. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to wow. think about how that's going to go. And in the same vein, I think, you know, after the Middle Ages, the belief in witchcraft and magic is also not going away. I mean, mm -hmm. basically every Shakespeare play, there's a witch who plays some sort of central role or fairies or a potion or some combination thereof. So it's not as sort of discreet uh, a barrier or a boundary as we'd like to think. No, there's, there's, there's a huge amount of sort of cultural... Um, cultural overlap and I'd say if I, if I was going to make a galaxy brained point I would say that a lot of these um, these figures like um, like Kaiser are what by doing quote unquote magic what they're actually doing is interacting with natural laws and playing with them in innovative ways that if this was a, a generation or two later we would put them down as sort of great inventors of the renaissance people like yes uh you know da vinci and so on and say that oh they're 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 scientists or whatever but because they are medieval even you know late admittedly late medieval but because they're medieval people 
we keep them sort of locked in this box of um, of superstition and weirdness and when in fact there is this I think what what I get from manuscripts like Bella Fortis and uh, Fontana's work is curiosity wait especially because we know that for instance, um, Conrad Kaiser was a huge influence on da Vinci. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the people from subsequent periods that we take to be revolutionary were building on the work of these medieval men. Yeah. What I think we can learn from these kinds of sources is that there is a, there is a tremendous imagination and curiosity about the world on display. And it doesn't fit into any of our sort of modern boxes about what kind of scholarship it is. And so it's, it's very hard to pin down. But I think, that, I, I think that there's something very sort of recognizably human about sort of trying to push the boundaries of what's possible. Even though a lot of the sort of inventions in these books are not practical and are not useful for wars. They are evidence of a of, of a curiosity and a and an experimental, dare I even say, willingness to push the boundaries of what's physically. So even though in theory and in name a lot of these inventions and a lot of these manuscripts that we have about siege engines and siege technology were about warfare and about sort of the practical purpose of just toppling the next guy over his castle. And killing as many people as possible in the process in horrifying ways. And establishing yourself as the dominant warlord of, you know, all of the neighboring city-states. What we see in a lot of these manuscripts is they go a lot further beyond the practicalities, and they're full of these wacky and clever and innovative inventions that you can't really explain with a purely practical purpose. Mm. So it's really interesting because... So I think it goes to show you that even though on the surface there's the justification and the motivation of war to explain why we have all of these manuscripts, there's a huge component as well that has to do with pushing the limits of human creativity and human imagination and creating these you know crazy inventions that maybe we'll never see them made, and maybe there's no reason necessarily to ever see them made. Maybe we don't need six different kinds of knife wagon, but it was this sort of, you know, deeply human creative exercise. And you see that, by the way, in um, throughout throughout human history, so many of the sort of innovations and, and leaps forward in sort of human understanding and about about the natural world and and its and the applications of sort of science come from warfare like for example you know atomic energy yeah which was unleashed by you know by you know by the bomb by the bomb and and by everybody's favorite uh pouty scientist oppie <laughs> <laughs> uh, um so in, in many ways, I think that guys like Oppenheimer are kind of the successors to um, to people like Kaiser and, and Fontana in that they are, they are kind of mad magicians wandering around the courts of Europe, yeah. <laughs> uh, sort of pushing, pushing forward, uh, pushing forward the, uh, the, the bounds of human understanding, as you say, although I don't know if any of the other ones ever felt bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think Conrad Kaiser was losing sleep over the, you know, moral and uh, ethical implications of, you know, the uh, the giant egg. Yeah, Kaiser did not go to Wenceslas and be like, I've had I've made a terrible mistake. My giant my giant my giant mechanical fork. <laughs> yeah. It killed people. <laughs> and Wenceslas is like, get this whiny bitch out of here. <laughs> I've made a giant mistake. My mechanical fork didn't kill enough people. <laughs> I have become death, the destroyer of eggs. <laughs> So that is going to do us for another episode of the Weird Medieval Guides podcast. Uh, I hope you had as much fun listening to it as we had recording it. So much. See, you say that like it's not true. So much! I don't like that. It sounds... So much!
I, I, I don't feel comfortable right now. The Should most, I leave? The most fun. Okay, I don't know what she's doing right now. Buckets of fun. I feel like I need to get out of this room before things get even weirder. Don't forget to like and subscribe. And leave sure a review. To leave a review. Yeah. And follow us on Twitter. I'm at Olivia underscore underscore MS. I'm at Aaron, spelled A-R-A-N, P Tappers on Twitter. There's also, you may remember the Weird Medieval Guys Twitter account. We're always here for you at Weird Medieval. You know where to find us. We will see you next time with another episode. Actually, no, fuck it. You want to tell them what the next episode is? We're going to see you next time. Sneak peek for our next episode. Investigating an age-old myth. Will a single Dorito actually kill a medieval peasant? I am so ready to get flavor blasted. You guys have no idea what you're in for. Next stop, Flavor Town. Woo! I do wonder what angle we would have taken for this podcast if uh, we hadn't just gone to Oppenheimer yesterday. <laughs> it's very fortuitous. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Good thing we didn't see, like, you know, the darkest hour or something. Uh, Meg 2 the trench. <laughs> this is just like that time that Jason Statham stabbed the Meg with a sword. <laughs> <laughs>